the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. It's here, the premiere episode of Crime Mistake. We've been talking about it for a long time and we're finally doing it. I know. I'm so excited to be sitting here with you. And, you know, Elena, I think we have to tell everybody mm-hmm. how this podcast came about yes. because there are, you know, there are a thousand true crime podcasts out mm-hmm. there. We've probably listened to all of yes, them. Yes. We are both true crime junkies, but we didn't discover that until the last time we got together. Mm-hmm. For and, margaritas. Know, for margaritas. Yeah. And, you know, we should let everybody know you and I have a lot in common. We get together pretty often, mm-hmm. sometimes for lunch, more often for margaritas. Um, because we're both boy moms. Yes. We're both real estate agents. Mm-hmm. And so we just, we have a lot in common and a lot to chat about. But the last time we were talking, we discovered. You, you were telling us about the murder house. That's right. We're talking about so, that. Yeah. So I found out recently that my husband grew up in a murder house. And you and I started talking about, you know, from a real estate perspective, what does that do to a house's value and who buys a house where a crime has occurred? And, you know, are there other houses that would be interesting to find out how the crime impacted the houses? Mm-hmm. And so this idea for a podcast was born. Right. Yeah. It's our little spin on it. But I also think it's wild that you just found out because you've been married since you were a baby. Yeah. I mean, my husband and I have been married 20 plus years at this point. Now he did tell me a few years ago, but when he said it, he was just so nonchalant. Like it was something I knew. I was like, no, this is a new piece of information. Thank you very much. So, but uh, that's just sort of how he is. He's very matter of fact, but. Well, I can't wait. You you did the first one and I can't wait to hear what you came up with, but we should probably introduce, we introduce ourselves. Let's introduce Melanie, our, our producer. Yeah. I mean, this podcast would not have come to fruition without Melanie, who is also a boy mom and also a trim crime junkie. We have not convinced her to be a real estate agent yet, yes. but we're working on yes. this. Yes, yes. We'll fight over her. I love it. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> My husband actually would love for me to be a real estate agent. So yeah. um, maybe uh, eventually I'll yeah. get there. Maybe this is a, a retirement job for you. I would love that. Get those kids through school first. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, ladies, in this episode, we are going to cover a story where there's no doubt a crime occurred and someone died in this home. It's one of the most infamous true crime stories of our generation, a 26-year-old crime that is yet to be solved, the JonBenet Ramsey murder. And, you know, I think this is the perfect true crime story for our premiere episode of Crime Estate for a handful of reasons. Um, you know, first and foremost, the Ramsey home was at the center of so many of the theories as to who committed the crime and how the crime occurred. And it's really impossible to share JonBenet's story without discussing her home and her home life. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough, while we've been researching this episode for quite a while now, we recently found out that the Colorado cold case team is taking a new look at this case and revisiting the over 21,000 tips and 1,000 interviews that the police have accumulated and conducted over the years. And last but not least... And maybe selfishly, this is the crime that I would really like to see solved in my lifetime. You know, I was in high school when JonBenet's murder occurred. And don't do the math on that or how old that makes me. But remember back to the mid-90s, the media had really only just begun 
following news stories with the type of 24-7 coverage that we're so used to now. Right. Yeah. Same in high school and just couldn't get away from the the coverage over it. Her beautiful blonde hair, her blue eyes, her smiling face. It was constant on the news. Yeah. And, you know, we'd be remiss when covering this crime not to bring up the criticism of the news media over the past few years for focusing on crimes against white females of privilege and not really covering crimes against women of other ethnicities and races. And we just want to point out that, you know, it's hard to cover the story of a blonde beauty pageant winner without some of those criticisms being front of mind. Absolutely. And we also want to comment that anytime we are talking about the death of a child or a potential sexual assault, that those listening should be aware that these issues can be disturbing. But as people who are immersed in the coverage of John Bonet's death, we would really love to see our killer brought to justice. Absolutely. And now, if you are not familiar with the storyline of John Bonet Ramsey's death, don't worry. We're going to be analyzing this later in the episode. Heather, in retrospect, why was a country so captivated by this crime? I think that's a great question. I think part of it is definitely the 24-7 news coverage like Mm -hmm. we just chatted Mm -hmm. about. But again, you know, this happened in a very affluent neighborhood. Um, You know, the victim was a child beauty pageant winner Mm -hmm. who looked like she was from this picture-perfect family. Yeah, she looked like a Barbie doll. You know, the crime occurred on the day after Christmas where it's supposed to be this beautiful, magical, perfect time. And I think a lot of people said, you know, if it can happen to this picture perfect family, you know, could it happen to us too? Right. Yeah. And I, when I think back on the coverage of that, I, you know, I think of her beautiful smiling face, but also think about the house and there was snow and crime scene tape. And it was, it was very jarring at the time to see. Right. To see that image of this beautiful home with the snow, with that crime scene tape across it. It's just those two things should not go together. Right. 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 And I think so much of the psyche behind our cultural interest in true crime is a defense or protection mechanism. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at a situation and we tell ourselves, oh, well, that would never be me. You know, I wouldn't be walking Mm -hmm. at 2 a.m. in a dark alley. But with this type of crime, it does make you feel like no one is safe. If it can occur there, it can occur anywhere. Right. Now, before we jump into the crime itself, let's just talk a little bit about who we're talking about, okay? So John and Patsy Ramsey marry in 1980. And at that time, they are living in Atlanta. Now, this is John's second marriage. His first marriage lasted 12 years, and they had three children together. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, he was married before. See, I'm teaching you something already. I love that. Now, Patsy was only 23 at the time. She was just coming off her win as Miss West Virginia a few years earlier. That's so young. I know. But you were... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't comment. I was 21 when I got married. And, you know, I just think that's pretty typical of towns in the South, Mm -hmm. at least in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, How old do you think our boys will be when they get married? I mean, at least 35, right? Yeah, Yeah. that's a good number. Yeah. I like that. They need to have a good job. Yes. And uh, have lived on their own and traveled a bit first. Yes. And of course, we have to love their wife. I was about to say that too. (laughs) Don't worry, ladies. We'll be great mother-in-laws, I promise. (laughs) So now I get the impression that Patsy really goes to school to get her MRS degree. Forgive me, Patsy, if that's wrong, but I mean, that's sort of what she did. She studied journalism in college, but was very happy to become a stay-at-home mother to her children, Burke and JonBenet, when they came along. And she really very much enjoyed her position as a socialite in both Atlanta and Boulder. Now, during the early years of their marriage, John is building a successful company, Access Graphics, which was later acquired by Lockheed Martin. It's because of this acquisition in 1991 that the family moves to Boulder from Atlanta, where the new headquarters is located. 
So they moved to Boulder in 1991. And as I already mentioned, Patsy is a Southern girl at heart. And I really don't think she wanted to leave Atlanta. You know, there's Boulder and Atlanta are two very different Mm -hmm. cities. You know, when I think of Atlanta, I think of designing women and, you know, the old South and debutantes. And when I think of Boulder, I think of more natural, Mm -hmm. you know, outdoorsy, a little bit more rugged. Right. So two very different cities. And I really think that the home was Patsy's consolation prize. You know, mm-hmm. he said, honey, I know you don't want to move to Boulder. Let's find something fabulous for you. You can do whatever you want to it. So it's here that this family of four lives at 755 15th Street. Now, this home is a gorgeous 1927 Tudor that the Ramses purchased in 1991 for $500,000. Wow. And it's located in the historic University Hill District of Boulder, Colorado, just west of the University of Colorado. So it's, you know, a quiet college town by day, but sort of comes to life on the weekends. And if you want to picture University Hills where their home is located, think of something out of a Norman Rockwell painting. You know, there's big trees, old homes with amazing architectural details, all lining sort of these hilly streets. I love a Tudor house. If you're not familiar with this style, they're they're pretty easy to pick out. They typically have a very steeply pitched roof, lots of gabled windows on the front of the house, and most often they're constructed of brick with wood accents that make a pattern on the exterior of the house. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They I really love the Tudor are too. Adorable. Uh, you know, and it's because of that steeply pitched roof that you see many people today converting the unfinished attic space into living space which often comes with, you know, shorter sort of mm-hmm. oddly pitched ceilings in those rooms. Now, Patsy Ramsey extensively remodeled the home. She added the master bedroom to this attic space to make it a total of 7,000 square feet and four stories, including the basement. That's wild. It's a huge feet. Huge. Um, And, you know, she spared no expense. According to a family friend, Jen Marino, they spent $700,000 on the remodel. And they could very well afford this lavish renovation as John's company was doing very well at the time. Elena, have you ever sold a 7,000 square foot house? No, I'd love the opportunity. I'd love to. Yeah. I mean, they say that everything's bigger in Texas and I have not sold a Uh 7,000 square foot house in Texas. Mm -mm. So yeah, that's a good size in Boulder. And in today's dollars, that 700,000 in the renovations equates to just a little bit over $1.5 million dollars. Now, despite the fact that John's business is doing really well, they have had a rough few years after moving to Boulder. In 1992, tragedy strikes the Ramsey family when John's daughter from his first marriage, Beth, and her boyfriend are killed in a car accident. A year later, in 1993, when Burke is six and John Bonet is three, Patsy is diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And Patsy spent a good portion of her time during chemotherapy preparing their home to be on the 1994 Christmas home tour in Boulder. I bring this up because it later plays into the few of the theories on who murdered John Benet and how they may have had access to the property. Now, fast forward several years to 1996. John is at this time in his early 50s, and he had just won Entrepreneur of the Year for the Boulder Chamber of Commerce. Now, I mentioned that John and Patsy have two children together. Their son, Burke, is nine at the time of the crime. And a lot of people said he had a violent streak. Define violent streak. Well, it's hard for me to know what people consider violent. You know, we have both seen nine-year-old boys Mm -hmm. roughhousing. And 
they do look like they're going to kill each other sometimes. <laughs> I know. It's true. It's true. I always try to pump the brakes. I have two boys. I always try to pump the brakes on that until I realize that they're just playing. Yeah. And apparently like that doesn't stop. I mean, our kids are almost into their teens right. now and wrestling just seems to be yeah, it's a thing. the thing they do. Yeah. So, you know, I, I I say that with a little bit of caution. It seems hearsay-ish-ish. But according to the Ramsey's former housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh, Burke was also known to leave feces around the house, specifically in JonBenet's bed, and to spread it on the walls in their home. Mm. That I have not seen. Right. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> seem quite as normal. So when crime scene technicians visited JonBenet's bedroom after sealing it off, they apparently found feces smeared on a box of candy that she had received for Christmas. It's crazy. It is crazy. Now, a lot of psychologists say this can be a cry for attention and that even the negative attention that a child gets, you know, getting in trouble for doing something like that is preferred to no attention from a parent. So, you know, if you think about, you know, how much attention John Bonet was getting being in the pageants, you know, I can see that being in the realm mm-hmm. of reactions. It right. was just sort of a cry for, hey, look at me. Mm-hmm. I'm Absolutely. Here too. And his parents really tried to protect him after the crime. Um, I think we all would have done the same thing. So so we don't hear a lot about Burke after the media circus immediately surrounding the crime dies down. But in 2016, Burke goes on to give his first interview as an adult on TV with Dr. Phil. Yes, I saw that and it was weird. It had a creepy smile on his face the whole time. He got beat up on social media yeah, he was, he was crucified in the media over that, um, that interview. And he's definitely awkward, but, you know, I would expect anyone who grew up in his circumstances right. to be pretty awkward. In the same year, he sued CBS for $750 million for airing a series that implicated mm. him in the crime against his sister. And they ended up settling for an undisclosed sum. I wonder how much. I know. I'm so curious. No. Don't you wish there was a place we could look that kind of thing Yeah, at? like MLS, but... For settlements? Yeah, that yeah. would be amazing. <laughs> My husband, the lawyer, is like cringing right now, I'm sure. Now, um, we've talked about Burke, who was nine at the time of the crime. John Monet is six, and she is the youngest child of the Ramsey family. John Ramsey described his daughter as an extrovert, very outgoing, full of energy and personality. He said she was smart and outgoing, and that he worried she would run off to Hollywood when she grew up because she loved to dance and perform and put on little shows for her family. At the time of death, John Bonet still wet the bed regularly, and that has, is said to be a source of frustration for her mom. Now, you and I have known a lot of six-year-olds. This seems fairly age-appropriate to me. I know. I, yeah, it can be frustrating when the kids are going to that stage, but I agree. Six-year-old doesn't seem... Uh, that far-fetched that she would still be doing that. It wasn't, she wasn't 15, 16. Exactly. And, you know, the media dubbed her the pageant princess. When she was uh, four years old, she won her first beauty pageant. She went on to win several others. Her last one on December 17th, um, right before she was born, which was Little Miss Christmas. I have to know, were you ever in a pageant? Because I picture you, Little Miss Kentucky. Yeah, I was not a pageant girl. I was sort of an awkward kid growing up. but. I will tell you, um, this is horrible, anti-pageant. Me and a group of friends would get together and we would dress up in these olden day ball gowns that were replicas of what the first ladies of Kentucky wore to the inaugural balls. And we would go around and like at teas for little old ladies in these old timey gowns. We were really cool. (laughs) Please tell me there's pictures. I mean, 
Yeah, I'm sure there are. <laughs> Can and, we post uh, those on the website? <laughs> I think they have been hidden forever, Elena. <laughs> okay, so let's let's move into the timeline of this crime. Um if we can get that picture of me in ball gowns out of yes. our heads. Yeah. Now, we know that on the afternoon of Christmas Day, December 25th, 1996, around 4 p.m., the Ramsey family left their home to attend a party at their friend, the White's house. And the Whites and the Ramseys are really good friends. Um, you know, they have kids approximately the same age. At one point, they just lived a few houses from each other. And so they spent a lot of weekends and holidays together. They even traveled to the Ramseys' summer house in Michigan together. And at this time, they had moved across town from the Ramseys. So the families arrived back home from the holiday party at 9.30 that evening. And they originally tell the police that John read to Burke and John Bonet, and then they went to sleep. But John later tells the police that John Bonet fell asleep in the car, and he carried them up the front set of stairs to their home and to her bedroom on the second story. That's weird that their story changed. I agree. It is. And I think part of the reason people were so curious about if they had any, right, you know, involvement so in the not, crime. It's not something that you forget. Like you either carried your child in from the car asleep or she walked in, you read a story. Yeah. And maybe because I am a little true crime obsessed, but I know where my child is every night when I go to bed. Mm -hmm. Like I go in and I make sure child is in bed before I go to sleep. Right. And I may look at the time. So just in case something happens, I can tell the police yes. at 1027, this is where he was. And he was wearing... That's normal, pajamas. right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally normal. Now, Burke later tells the police that at some point in the night, he got up to play with a new toy that he received for Christmas. And there just isn't a lot more in the documented timeline of that evening. We assume that John and Patsy retired to their bedroom on the third floor of the house and you know, while we're talking about the house, let me just give you a quick overview of the layout of the house. Because remember, John and Patsy remodeled the attic to be their master bedroom. So it's really four levels with the Ramseys being on the fourth level. The kids, even though we're calling it the second story, it's really the third level of the house if you include the basement. And because John had other children from his previous marriage, they all had bedrooms and baths on that level of the house. So it was a pretty large kids level. And then you go down a floor to the main living and kitchen, and then you go down a level to the basement, which was really used for storage. You know, they didn't use the basement a lot. Gotcha. So, it, I mean, you covered this, but it's, it's a massive house. And I think at the time we didn't realize, or maybe I didn't realize how big it was. And the whole time you're asking yourself, how could they not know what happened in their home? I, I didn't grow up in a 7,000 square foot home that, you know, it totally makes sense now how if they didn't have anything to do with it, they would not know what's happening on the basement level if they're on the top floor. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that was a question I had too. Like, how could they not hear what's happening in the house? But we've posted floor plans of the house on crimeestate.com. So you guys go and check out the layout of the house, especially as we, you know, dig into further theories on intruders and how they got in. I think that really would be helpful to have that visual in your head as we mm -hmm. discuss the house. Now, fast forwarding to the morning of December 26th at a little after 5.30 a.m., Patsy Ramsey wakes up and she walks down the back set of stairs from her third floor bedroom. That's right. I did say back set of stairs. There are actually two sets of stairs in this house. There's the main front stairs and then a set of back spiral stairs. And it's on these spiral stairs that she finds the infamous ransom note. Okay, so I have a question. Mm -hmm. If you walk down the stairs and saw a paper lying 
on the step, Mm -hmm. what would you do? Uh, Pick it up and read it and probably get mad at someone in the house for leaving it there so I could break my neck in the morning. Yeah, we asked, we were talking about this earlier and Melanie, you said you would just step over it assuming that one of your kids had just left something on the steps. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I might pick it up and might not even look at it, to be honest with you, especially if it's the day after Christmas and I'm tired. Like, I honestly, you know, the day after Christmas in my house, there's still wrapping paper remnants everywhere. There's decoration, there's leftovers from, you know, I mean, I might pick it up, but honestly, I would just thought it was miscellaneous. Crumple it up and yeah, throw it in the yeah, trash. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it would not, especially if I haven't had any coffee. Yeah, last thing. 5.30 a.m. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to go home and uh, look around the house at pieces of paper and decide, <laughs> would I actually read it at early Chances in the are no. No. What would you do? Well, I mean, I'm a little bit OCD. Yes. I would be annoyed I that there was paper on my steps yeah. and I would pick it up and I would probably like march it into whoever's right. room that left it there. Right. And like, why did yeah. you want me to fall? Totally. Yeah, totally. But again, we've already established that I'm crazy. So, yeah. yes. Um, but I asked this question because we later find out that neither John nor Patsy Ramsey's fingerprints are on this ransom note. And I just have a hard time picturing a scenario where they don't pick up the note and read it. I'm just not sure how their fingerprints aren't on it. Yeah. How do you step over it and not, it doesn't make any sense at all. But had they seen, had they seen the note? Like, like, or was it that, that um, just like for me, where I might not even have noticed it? Well, yeah. And we'll get to this in just a second, but Patsy definitely has read the note because she calls 911. So she has seen it. So then you have to envision that she's like bending over from the waist on spiral stairs, reading a note. And then she doesn't pick it up. Right. Which is weird. But it's very weird. Can we talk about the spiral staircase again? Yeah, can I hate we? those. They're they're the worst. And I I five hundred thousand on a remodel and they couldn't figure out how to get rid of the spiral staircase. Yeah, seven hundred thousand. Seven hundred thousand. Even oh my worse. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, I do think in a lot of these old homes, like they try to use the space they have, but I, I hate a spiral staircase. Well, and they had plenty you. of space. Seven thousand. They did. They could have <laughs> done. Yeah. Um, real estate side note, don't add a spiral staircase <laughs> to your house. If you can avoid it, definitely avoid it. Well, and you know, the fact that the note was left on the back stairs really indicates that whoever mm. left it there was familiar with the family's routines. Because I think, you know, if you're a back set of stairs person, that is, you know, that's what the family uses, not what people you're entertaining right. use. Right. And we're going to go into a lot of detail on this ransom note, but first let's finish up the timeline for the rest of December 26th at the Ramsey home. The 911 call comes in at 5.52 a.m. and the Boulder police arrive just minutes later at 5.55. Now, we're not going to play the 911 call for you guys, but if you want to listen to it, we've linked it to our website at crimeestate.com. And a lot is later made of what Patsy said and how she sounded on that call. Yeah, I always think that's very interesting. Like, I want to hear the tone. I want to hear if they sound frantic. I want to hear background noises. I'll be, I'm always interested to hear the 911 calls. I am too. And I'm always fascinated by whether or not people stay on the line until the police arrive mm. or whether they hang up. Okay. What do you uh, think that means? Um, I, I don't know. I just think if I'm thinking about me, I would want that lifeline to the police. Right. And I would want, okay. I would want to like meet them at the door with 911 mm. on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like in a lot of cases, people do hang up. And I wonder if that's 
you know, sort of their psyche, like Mm -hmm. trying to avoid the police. Right. I'm probably reading so much into that right now, but. Well, I I mean, I see both. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do. Yeah. Let's hope we never have to find out. Right. Right. Now we know that immediately after Patsy hangs up with the 911 operator, she starts calling friends to come over and presumably help with the search for John Bonet. I wouldn't do that. Sorry. I don't think I would do that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't either, especially at 5.55 in the morning, the day after Christmas. So she calls the Whites, who they were with the night before, and then she calls another set of family friends, the Fernies, and her pastor also arrives. Now, it's unclear as to who called him, but we do know that Patsy's deeply religious, so it wouldn't be odd that either she called the pastor or friends that she had called called the pastor and asked him to come. And from 6 a.m. until 1 p.m., the house is a circus. Friends and police are coming and going. The police do cordon off John Bonet's room, but the rest of the house is not being treated as a crime scene. So much so that at 1 o'clock, in the interest of giving John something to do, one of the detectives asks him and his friends to search the house to see if anything is missing or unusual. So John and his friend Fleet White start searching the house. And it's at this point that John finds John Bonet's body in the basement in a room they called the wine room, but was really used more for storage. Her mouth had been covered in duct tape and her wrist and neck were wrapped with a white cord. Her torso had been covered in a white blanket. John removes the duct tape and he picks her up and carries her, holding her out and away from his body upstairs to where his friends and family are waiting. And they put her down at the base of the Christmas tree. Now, according to people that were there, Patsy threw herself over the child's body, which, you know, is not only tragic, but also really contaminated the crime scene. And I can't even imagine what is going through their minds at this point. But John is making some quick decisions because by 1.40, he is on the phone with his pilot, coordinating a flight from Boulder to Atlanta. Now, investigators overhear this conversation and instruct the Ramses that they are not to leave town. They ask the Ramses and everyone at the house to go to a local hotel so that they can put people in separate rooms for interviews. Now, let's remember that The Ramseys are very wealthy and influential in this town, and the local police had been told to treat the Ramseys as victims and not suspects. So when John asks for a day to grieve prior to interviews, the police agree. They walk out of the house at 2 o'clock with plans to stay with a friend that evening, and Alana, they never enter the house again, and they don't speak to the police until four months later. That's a lot to process. That's a lot going on. I have a lot of thoughts, mostly mad at everything. Like the police not going through the house to begin with, getting everyone out of the house, only um, sectioning off her room and not the rest of the house, him going. It all just sounds very maddening. I agree. Well, you know, and the Boulder police were really crucified in the media in the coming days and months for how they handled the crime scene. And it's really largely considered to be the reason that the crime has yet to be solved 26 years later. Now, over the years, there have been hundreds of theories on who killed John Bonet, but they can all really be broken down into two categories. Either the family did it or an intruder did it. And, you know, we could probably go back and do a whole series on our podcast just on the ransom note alone. Um, we have posted it on our website, crimestate.com. If you guys want to go and read the note yourself, um, 
And I think it's important to look at it because there's a lot to be said, not only for the words in the note, but also the way it's written. So I'm going to read the note to you now. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for a proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good Southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. That's so weird. It's really long. It's extremely long. Very long. Um, The amounts are weird. There's just a lot of weird things about that ransom note. Yeah, like I said, I think we could dive into a whole podcast series on the ransom note alone. You know, we talked about that it's odd that they found it on the back staircase. That's sort of unusual unless it's somebody familiar Mm -hmm. with their daily routines. Um, And Patsy apparently did go down those steps every morning to get her cup of coffee. You would think that the kidnappers would have left the note in JonBenet's bed or the nightstand somewhere else besides the staircase. Yeah, I mean, definitely if they had put it in JonBenet's room, that would have been a lot more dramatic, right? Mm-hmm. Like you go to get your daughter up, she's missing. You're obviously going to see the note. Like like we talked about, they could have stepped over it and just not even seen it for hours. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. So it's almost like they wanted Patsy to find it first. And you can really see why the Boulder police and the FBI had questions about whether or not this was actually a kidnapping from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, even the location of the note was suspicious. Right. Additionally, there were some references in the ransom note that were unusual. First, the kidnappers referenced the amount of the ransom, $118,000. And this was the exact amount of John's Christmas bonus. So weird. I mean, they really should have asked for more given how wealthy they were. That's what I was thinking. Um, And then people had to ask, how did they know the exact amount The vice president of John's company, Access Graphics, went on record as saying that very few people would have known the exact amount of John's Christmas bonus. Second, 
sort of a minor detail, but also suggesting that this was written by someone well-known to the family. The note states that John should get the money from your account, indicating that the person knew there was that amount of cash in John's account at the bank at that moment. And experts say that most ransom notes don't include comments on the source of the money, right? So, or if they do, it's generic, like go to the bank and get this money or just just bring us this money. They don't really care where it comes from. So mm-hmm. it was a little odd that they referenced his bank account. And then third, the note is specifically written to Mr. Ramsey, not Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey or to John. And so analysts have said that the person that wrote the note was probably respectful of John's authority in some way. Um, but then there are other pieces of the note that indicate resentment. So they call him a fat cat. And, you know, it's just one of the ways that the note differs from the beginning to the end. We start with this authority and respect, and then it it moves into resentment. Mm-hmm. Now, Alana, have you ever given a speech in public? Yes, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And think about when you did that, you sort of start out very stiff and formal, and then you relax into what you're saying and your speech pattern becomes mm-hmm. more like what you mm-hmm. use normally and you just sort of become more of yourself right. in, this, in mm-hmm. this speech. And the note's exactly the same way. Analysts believe that the beginning of the note was written with more control and more thought behind throwing investigators off to who the true kidnappers were. And that as the note went on, the writers sort of settled in and became more authentic. And other examples of this. So they misspelled business and possessions at the beginning of the note, but then later went on to spell attache and deviation correctly, even using the correct like accent aigue accent mark Hmm. on attache. And experts agree that the note was most likely written by a well-educated person and that the two misspellings at the beginning of the note were done on purpose in order to throw off the police. Hmm. Okay, and last but not least, the ransom note was written on paper from a notebook that Patsy Ramsey kept in her kitchen. Now, the writer of the note didn't come prepared with a note, but instead wrote it after the fact inside the home. And then put the notebook back in its appropriate place in the kitchen. All of that's sort of suspect. That's so weird that they presumably rummaged through the kitchen drawers to find a notepad, a pen, wrote it out. Wouldn't you show up with the note, I think? I mean, certainly if you were planning to kidnap somebody, wouldn't you think you would show up with the note ready to go? So again, you know, all of these things just sort of indicate that whoever wrote the note was familiar with the house or the family's routine. And probably wasn't really worried about being caught. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Is the note available to see the handwriting or is it just online in a text format? Oh, I have posted the handwriting. Oh, Atlanta. yeah. Yeah. Y'all go check it out. Crimeestate.com. Now, okay, so let's talk about, we've talked about the ransom note. Let's sort of go into the autopsy. This is not my favorite part to discuss, but we're going to get through it because I think it's important to the theories of who committed the crime. The Boulder County coroner, John Meyer, noted that John Bonet was wearing a long-sleeved white-knit shirt with a silver star embroidered on the front. Her blonde hair was in two ponytails. She was wearing white long underwear with a pair of white panties with printed rosebuds and the word Wednesday in the waistband, a gold necklace with a cross on it, And she wore a yellow metal band on her right middle finger and had a yellow ID bracelet that bore the name John Bonet on one side and the date 122596 on the other. So presumably a Christmas gift from that year. 
and on the palm of her left hand, someone had drawn a red ink heart. Now, according to Detective Linda Arndt, who witnessed the autopsy, green Christmas garland, like the garland decorating the spiral staircase in their house, was tangled in her hair. And her injuries were extensive. She had abrasions on the side of her face between her ear and jaw, possible petechial hemorrhages, those tidy broken blood vessels in her eyes, several small dark circles that police at one point thought might be marks made by a taser gun. And she had a skull fracture and subdural hemorrhage or bleeding in the brain, as well as bruises on her brain. She had abrasions on her lower back with some scratch-like abrasions on the back of her left leg and an eight and a half inch fracture on her skull. The most troubling and perhaps unexpected finding were physical signs that John Bonet may have been sexually abused by an unknown person. And these findings suggested that at the time of her death, she had been sexually assaulted, but that she may have also experienced sexual trauma prior to the day she died as well. However, no semen was found on the body, and the coroner also reported that the pubic area appeared to have been wiped clean with a cloth. Also confusing is the fact that they found pineapple in JonBenet's stomach and small intestines. And that was a little confusing because, you know, nobody said they had served pineapple that night. So that was um, an area of question from the autopsy. Mm-hmm. Do your kids get up in the middle of the night for a snack? Not that I'm aware of. I think they're pretty heavy sleepers. Yeah, me too. Like I think, as a matter of fact, several years ago, we had a tornado siren go off after, you know, bedtime. And I could not wake my son up. And I had to like fireman carry him into the bathroom and then like sort of walk him back to bed. And he woke up the next morning, didn't even like know anything (laughs) had happened. But sorry, that's probably too lighthearted when discussing an autopsy. Um, the autopsy's official report is that John Bonet died of asphyxia by strangulation. So as a quick summary, here's what the investigators know. John Bonet is found dead in the basement. Um, there's a ransom note, but the alleged kidnappers didn't actually take the body. No ransom phone call is ever received. And the autopsy shows that she had extensive injuries. And it's with this info that they come up with their first theory on who killed John Bonet. Don't miss our next episode when we discuss the case against John, Patsy, and Burke Ramsey, the first suspects in the murder of John Bonet Ramsey, and how the house played into the crime. Hey guys, Heather and Alana here, popping in with a post recording update. After we recorded this episode, we went on to record several more so that you all could binge our podcast when it finally dropped. And in that time, the Ramsey house came back on the market. Okay, here's what we know. According to the listing, the home is described as stately and modernized 1920s Tudor estate in an epic boulder location on three lots, stunning curb appeal with amazing flat iron views. 7,240 square feet of elegant living areas, impressive rooms with east, south, and west exposure, filling the home with natural light, luxurious gourmet kitchen, catering kitchen, mature landscaping, expansive brick patio, gorgeous gardens, towering trees, gated for privacy, and within walking distance to see you and Chautauqua. 
Park. Aqua Park. Chautauqua Park. I'm probably butchering that, but we're just going to go with it. We'll go with that. Outstanding hiking and world-class concerts. Relax in the 1,141 square foot top floor penthouse primary suite with two full baths, fireplace, intricate millwork, incredible flat iron and city views. Second floor features four bedrooms, two ensuite, and one with private deck, game room with large terrace and full bath. Spacious lower level with stone accents, media room, wet bar, wine cellar, fireplace, and half bath. Surrounded by luxury homes, a beautiful stroll to Pearl Street shops, restaurants, CU, and easy access to Denver. An impressive Boulder estate with timeless appeal and an unbeatable location. This home is currently listed by Jeffrey Erickson and Ryan McIntosh with LIV Sotheby's International Realty. And of course, we've linked the listing to our website, so check it out on crimeestate.com. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. 